Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. All right, we're going to be in Romans chapter 5 this morning. Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21 is going to be our text for this morning. It's always a privilege to get to share the Word of God with you. I don't take uh, this opportunity lightly. I get a couple times a year to address uh, everybody in the congregation, and I always appreciate Pastor Shulman. He allows me to to speak to everyone, our our Emmanuel Baptist Church family, uh, this morning. So before I became a youth pastor, one of my jobs was to work at summer camp. Um, in between my college semesters, I would take off and usually work at a, at a summer camp of some kind. And one of my roles at a summer camp was working on a zip line. So I don't know if anybody here has been on a zip line, but that was one of my roles was being a zip line operator. I would get to work the platform on occasion. And so when you're on the platform, your job essentially is to get youth down that, that zip line having as much fun as you can. But every, most of the youth, it was no problems. Most of the children would just go right away, and they didn't have any issue with it. But on occasion, you would get that one kid who would get up there and then realize while they're on top of the platform, they're scared of heights. And they were unsure whether or not they, they wanted to go or not. And so as their counselor and uh, the zip line operator, I would attempt to encourage them to leave, you know, count the three and do all these things. But eventually, I would have to have them make a decision. It's like, okay, you're either going off this platform, so you're going to go down this ride, you're going to have fun, I promise you, and you're, you're going to be all right, or you're going to have to go back down, and you're going to get belayed back down. But one of the options is not to stay here hugging the tree. You cannot do that. You're going to have to leave at some point. I will admit, there were a few children or youth that got a little extra helping hand to go down that platform um, as, as they went. So they were a little, one, two, three, ah, no, give them a little extra, little extra nudge to, to go down that platform. But the, the point is, they were going to go down. There was only two ways that you're going to go down. You're either taking the zip line or you're going to be belayed and rappelled down that tree. So that's kind of our theme this morning, is that there is no middle ground. At some point, you're going to have to make a decision. You're going to be either in Adam or you're going to be in Christ. And what we're going to find this morning in Romans chapter 5 is with Adam, we have sin, condemnation, and guilt. And Jesus comes to bring righteousness, life, and justification. Just like there were two kinds of people, on, uh, two kinds of ways to kind of go down that platform, uh, we're going to have two responses to this text this morning. So one of the things I wanted to do is actually kind of take a cosmic overview, if you will, like kind of a big picture overview of the reason for Christmas. And I think this passage does a good job at showing one of the reasons why Jesus had to come. So let's pick up our text, Romans chapter 5. We're going to pick up in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. 
But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of grace that that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and free gift of righteousness reign in life through that one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by that one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by that one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's a lot we could say about today's text about today's passage. It's rich in theology, its meaning, and application. And so we're going to be considering the main idea Paul's trying to get at this morning, just the, the main principle that Paul's trying to develop in this, in this passage, which is this. You're either condemned in Adam, or you are justified by faith in Christ. So it's an either-or. You're either condemned in Adam, or you are justified by faith in Christ. So in this text, there's a very stark contrast between the first Adam, Adam in the Garden of Eden, and the second Adam, Jesus. See, Paul is driving home a point here, and his point is that there is no middle ground. One will be found in Adam, or one will be found in Christ. To that end, to understand this passage, first we're going to consider Adam and what Paul is saying about Adam in this text. Then we're going to look at Jesus and then ourselves. And so all of this leads us to our first point, which is this. The condemnation of sinful man because of Adam. See, in this passage, Paul lists out all the things that have happened because of Adam and Adam's sin and his sin being passed on to his posterity, as Paul explains in this passage. There's a certain domino effect that happens. So let me kind of show you the words that Paul is using and the connections he's drawing. So in verses 12 through 14, in your text, Paul makes a connection between sin, transgression, and death. Paul mentions that this sin came through that one man in death because of sin. A little later on in verse 16, Paul mentions that one man's sin brings about a judgment of condemnation. So how does all this work together? See, you see, Adam is a representative of the human race. Adam transgressed, that means to disobey God's law in the garden. And because of Adam's disobedience, he received a judgment by God which was condemnation, which means, what is that judgment? Death, both physically and spiritually, we are to die. So Paul is just li listing out the facts. If you're going to read Genesis chapters 1 through 3 on how sin, disobedience, condemnation, and death all get interconnected and are introduced into the human race because of Adam. In fact, Paul goes as far to say that we are considered to have sinned in Adam. Now, there's some controversy over that idea because it's kind of, the wording is kind of indicating that 
when Adam sinned, in a sense, we sinned, and we are in Adam, inheriting his guilt and condemnation as well. Now, at this point, you might be thinking a little bit to yourself, that doesn't seem fair. How is it that I can be responsible, held responsible, for something that somebody else did? Well, let me give you a couple explanations on why that is not any injustice on God's account. First, in the same way that we inherit Adam's sin and guilt is also the same way that we inherit the righteousness and justification in Christ. So if we're going to have a problem with how we receive Adam's condemnation and guilt, we should also have a problem with how we receive Christ's righteousness and justification. Regardless of how, which way you look at it, we have to accept some sense of headship and re, uh, representation with both Adam and the second Adam, Jesus Christ. The second thing that we understand uh, in, our, in our culture is representation. We live in a representative democracy. We elect people to go to Congress where hopefully they, they, prote- they uh, are protecting our voice and giving us a voice in that, in that body, and they are acting on the behalf of a constituency, which would be us, ideally, right? Um, now, we could have debates whether or not they actually do that, but that's ideally how representation works in government. So we understand the importance of representation as well. And the third thing, and why this makes some sense, is we all bear the consequences of history. So, for example, July 4, 1776, United States declared independence from England. And we're still bearing the consequences of that decision made almost 250 years ago. So in all of this, we understand that we bear these consequences then of Adam's sin and guilt. So we have borne his both sin that he committed in the garden and also the guilt that comes because of that. And not only that, we've inherited his propensity to sin. I want you to look back at verses 12 through 15. Paul's making a point here about an all-pervasive influence, an all-pervasive nature of sin. It is said that sin spread through all men, and that many died because of one man's trespass. What Paul is describing here is that this is the human race, since Adam fell into sin. We've inherited his sin and guilt before God, and we've also inherited his nature to embrace that same sort of sin. This is why David would say this in Psalm 51.5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. See, David is commenting on this very fact. Sin is an all-pervasive power to the human experience because of Adam's fall. Ever since the fall of Adam, it has entered into the human race. It touches on every single facet of what it means to be a human person. For example, our thoughts are not what they should, they should be. They are marred by sin. Our intelligence is marred by sin. Our bodies are marred by sin. Our emotions are not, the, are not working the way that they should. And our desires can be flawed in some ways because it has all been touched by sin. So there's no single element of the human person that is not touched by sin. For instance, Isaiah would say this even about our deeds. Isaiah 64, 6. We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. See, Isaiah is saying, look, there's even on our best days, even the best thing that you've done, it's been touched by sin. And it's been polluted because of this all-pervasive, all, um, all-encompassing nature of sin that we've inherited because of Adam. 
This is a disobedient, contrary nature to God, to, to God that we have because of Adam. Now, when we think about it, if we were in Adam's shoes, if we're going to be honest with ourselves, we probably all would have done the very same thing Adam did. I'll be honest. The one thing is somebody tells me, don't do this, I really want to do it. That, and we have all inherited that because of Adam. And that inheritance of that sin uh, of Adam, that guilt and condemnation, is what's called original sin. And that inheritance of his nature is what's called total depravity. Now, I didn't start with those terms because there's a lot of confusion over what they mean, but I, I'd rather like the text speak and define those terms for us. Paul elsewhere would kind of describe it a little bit differently in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. Paul says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. All right, so Paul's describing the human nature here. And what, what does human nature look like? We are dead in sin, given to trespassing God's commands. We are following the course of the sinful world. We are following the devil. That's the prince of the power of the air. We are giving into our sinful nature and its desires. Therefore, every human being rightfully deserves God's wrath against sin. Maybe you're here this morning and you're like, I'm not that bad. You know, I'm not that, I'm a pretty good person. You know, I don't cheat on my taxes. I'm faithful to my spouse. I t- usually tell the truth. See, Paul's being clear in Romans here that we are still under God's judgment. And to be blunt, if we were to go through the Ten Commandments, you have already sinned in thought, word, and deed. In the same way as well, sometimes we think like our good behavior should excuse our bad behavior. If I were driving home and I ran a red light, and the state patrol got behind me and pulled me over, and I go, sir, I don't think I should get a ticket today. You see, I have been following traffic laws for about 15 years now, and since I've been following traffic laws for 15 years, you cannot write me a ticket for that one time I, I ran that red light. What do you think the state patrol is going to do? They're just going to go, yeah, nice try, write me that ticket, and I'm going to be having to pay that fine. And somehow we think God needs to be operating differently. And if we, we could also do the math on this. Suppose that you only sinned one time a day. That'd be 365 in a year. And I don't know how old you are. I will let you do the math for your own age. That is a lot of sin that we have going against us. So is it any wonder that we are guilty before God? So we, not only are we guilty ourselves, but we're also guilty because of Adam. And is there anything more provable than human sin? Regardless of how much we've improved technologically, we still do the same things that everybody else has done throughout history. Human beings are still stealing and killing and destroying and cheating and all those same things that we have always done. There was an interesting uh, essay contest that was given at the end of the 19th century. An English newspaper put out an inquiry to all the famous smart people at the time. So the journalists, the academians, the politicians, religious leaders, and they wanted them to address this one question. And this question was this, what's wrong with the world? 
So they all wrote their responses, submitted them back to this newspaper, and they were publishing these as letters to the editor. My understanding is that you'd read things like greed, communism, capitalism, war, hunger, lack of resources. That's what's wrong with the world. There was one English, uh, Christian English journalist. His name was G.K. Chesterton. He reportedly wrote the following. Dear Sir, in regard to what is wrong with the world, I am sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. <laughs> See, Chesterton knew that what was wrong with it is human beings, himself. We are what's wrong with the world. We, because of that all-pervasive, all-encompassing sinful nature we possess it from our forefather, Adam. Part of the becoming a Christian is acknowledging that guilt that we have before God. And are you at that point where you're willing to admit your guilt and your sinfulness before God today? You know, it was just occurring to me like how often this language of sin and guilt has been removed from our vocabulary. Um, instead, if something bad happens in our culture, what we look for are all the psychological, psychological motivations and, you know, the upbringing and all these other things that might be going on in the background to why they might have committed such and such a crime. So if there's a murder, it's because, you know, he was picked on as a kid. If there's cheating in school, parents are putting too much pressure on their kids that they're cheating. Um, if there is, if somebody's confused about what gender they are, it's because maybe they're just transgendered. The biblical view is that we are corrupted by sin. Sin is that reason a lot of times, and we have a culture that's just trying to find reasons for human sinfulness instead of just calling it what it is, which is human sin. See, sin has ceased for a lot of us to be a category in which we reason. Excuses, reasons, all these other things are given rather than just blaming human nature itself, admitting our own sin and guilt. Often, I, when I go to different groups, I kind of will ask them sometimes, and I'll say, okay, are people basically good, basically bad, or morally neutral? And usually the answer I get is human beings are basically good or neutral. You know, and they usually will bring, uh, bring up something like how they're raised is the most important thing. But the biblical view is, regardless of how a person is raised, is that we are all touched and corrupted by sin. In reality, we had all admit this pragmatically if you lock your doors at night. Because you know what the human nature is. We know what the tendency of the human heart is. That's why we're going to protect our wallets, make sure that it's on our person and not just sitting out for the whole world to see. Because we know what the tendency of the human heart is. So I'd encourage you as a Christian, don't be duped. Don't be duped by all of our world's excuses and tendency to downplay and disregard sin. Our world would like to pretend like human beings are pretty much generally good people, and they try to look at the world through like a worldly therapeutic lens rather than a biblical one. Too often, I think, we, we have conversations that reflect a, a worldly worldview rather than a biblical one. So if through Adam, then, we've received sin, guilt, condemnation, and death entering into the world... Is that me? Okay, they're just saying, keep going. Uh, if that's the case because of Adam, we are hopeless. But thankfully, and this is why we celebrate Christmas, God sent a second and greater and better Adam, Jesus, to redeem sinful man. And that's our second point here, which is this, the restoration of a righteous man. 
So in Adam, we have the condemnation of a sinful man. Now we have a restoration of a righteous man. Now in Adam, we've received condemnation and death. Jesus undoes what Adam does. Jesus restores what Adam broke by charting a better and greater path. In verse 14, Paul kind of clues us in on this. He, he says that this Adam, our first Adam, the Adam in the garden, was a type of the one who was to come. And Paul's going to contrast that type with Jesus as the greater and better type, starting in verse, in verse 17. In verse 18, Jesus Christ, we're told, lives a righteous life, which leads to justification and life. Jesus was obedient unto death that we see in verse 19. Whereas Adam disobeyed and was sinned, bringing judgment, condemnation, and death, Jesus comes, obeys perfectly, achieves righteousness, is justified before God, and brings life. The news with Adam is awful and terrible, leaving us hopeless, helpless, and hellbound, as Pastor Sean reminds us. Jesus Christ comes to bring us hope and help and to lead us heavenly, heavenward uh, for his people. Have you guys ever watched those videos, for example, that, that go backwards? For example, you see that gra- the glass shatter on a window and you play it backwards and it looks like the glass comes back together. That's what we have in Christ, whereas Adam shattered the glass of what it looks like for us to be human beings. Jesus puts it back together. See, there's a logic here to Paul's argument that I don't want you to ignore. Jesus comes, he obeys perfectly, and he achieves a righteous standing before God in regards to the law. That righteous standing means to be justified in the heavenly court. And that justification is, it leads to a reward of eternal life. And those are the rewards that he shares with those that are in him. So the reason we celebrate Christmas is that Jesus Christ came to be the second and better Adam. And, this, and our Bibles frequently mention this sinless nature of Christ. For example, 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, this is speaking of Jesus. He, that is God the Father, made him to be sin, who knew no sin, that's Jesus, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Peter 2.23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So Jesus obeys and fulfilled all righteousness for the sake of those who would be in him. In the same way the sentencing of Adam is handed down to those that are in Adam, the justification leading to life is laid out for those that are in Christ. So Paul is laying out this familiar biblical imagery of two ways and two paths. One will either be in Adam or in Christ. Now there was kind of a key idea that I skipped over because I wanted to show you the progression in Paul. Why did God do this? What was his motivation in bringing this all about? Well, I want you to pay attention to how often the words grace and gift show, show up. You can start, see that in verse 15. The free gift is not like the trespass. And then you have the grace of God and the free gift of grace. And then in verse 16, the free gift. And if we would keep reading, there's more, there's more, term, there's more of this idea of grace and gifting. 
And when we think about Christmas, one of the things that we like to do is exchange gifts. So all the children and adults that are here, did your parents make you do a bunch of chores before you had to open your Christmas present? Did they make you stand on your head and sing a Christmas carol? Probably not, right? They just gave you your gift and you unwrapped it and opened it. The point of a gift is that it's unearned. It's something that you receive and just enjoy because of the heart of the giver. One can never earn a gift, otherwise it's not a gift. It's a wage at that point if you try to do something to earn that gift. The gift is a representation of the heart of a giver. It's to be received joyously and thankfully. And so grace is that attitude of God that he has towards sinners which, which, who gifts us all with salvation or would give us the opportunity for salvation. Just as one can never earn a present as Christmas, we cannot earn salvation. Salvation through Christ can only be received by faith as a gift. This is why Paul would say elsewhere in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. See, faith is the reception and trusting of the heart of the giver. So sort of like if your parents or whoever is giving you a Christmas present, you don't go, hmm, what are you up to? You just receive it because you are trusting the, 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 the intention of that person who's giving you that gift. We are not accepted before God then because of any merit of our own, but because of the merits of Christ. We don't work our way up to God. God instead sent Jesus down from heaven to come to earth to rescue a sinful humanity who was lost and in Adam. So Paul, throughout that previous chapter, if you would go read uh, chapter 4 on your own, he has been making it very, very clear that the only way anybody is justified is, is by faith alone in Christ. So here's the options that Paul is laying forth for us this morning in Romans 5. You are born, and you can remain in Adam, incurring sinful uh, guilt and death, or you can, through faith, receive the free gift of salvation achieved by Christ. So in biblical terminology, we must repent of our sins and believe in Jesus Christ to be saved. Essentially, one is renouncing Adam's way and swearing allegiance to the second and better Adam, Jesus Christ. So how do you know if you're in Adam or you're in Christ this morning? There's two diagnostic questions that you could maybe ask yourself. The first one is this. Have you genuinely repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus Christ? You see, if you have, you have good reason to think of yourself as in Christ. A sinner who has not repented of their sins is not in Christ. If you are trusting in your own efforts to earn your way up to God, you are not trusting in Christ. You're trusting in yourself. A person who trusts in Christ rests on Jesus' righteousness and not one's own. You know, one of the things that, uh, when I was thinking about this idea of repentance that I think often is missed, repentance means a, a change of mind and a change of way. Um, I was having a conversation with a, with a youth, um, and we were talking about um, a friend that they had, and they were like, yeah, you know, how many times do I need to forgive them? And we had this conversation about forgiveness, but come to find out this person who kept asking for forgiveness kept doing the very same sort of action. It was, it was sort of, and so I kind of gave a silly example I'll give you guys. Suppose that I was sitting here across the room shooting spitwads at you, and you kept telling me to stop it. And I'm like, I'm sorry, and I kept doing it. 
And they're like, well, that, that's kind of dumb. Who would do that? You're not, really, you know, you're not really doing anything of that. Like, well, that's kind of the same idea of repentance. If we're saying that we're repenting, it means that we stop. I wouldn't keep doing the same things. So the first question, how do I know if I'm in Adam or in Christ? Have I repented of my sins, genuinely repented of my sins, and trusted in Christ? And the second question is this, what is your fruit? Have I genuinely done that, and what is my fruit? Another consistent theme in Scripture is that your fruit reveals and, and comes out of your nature. Matthew seven sixteen through 20, Jesus says, You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, and the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. You see, a person that is in Christ produces the fruit of Christ. Um, I know Pastor Sean spent this past fall on Wednesday nights describing the fruit of the Spirit. That's what it means to be in Christ, is to have that sort of fruit. A person in Adam produces the works of Adam. So what do you see over the grand picture of your life? Do you see good fruit, the fruit of Christ, or do you see bad fruit, the works of Adam? So you're going to reflect the results over the grand course of your life of the one that you are in. So in the end, then, we only have two possibilities, according to Paul, as a human being. You're either in Adam or you are in Christ. And those two possibilities lead to the third and final point this morning, which is this. There is no neutrality for man. Many people have this idea, maybe this is you this morning, that we're going to try to remain neutral, kind of have a non-decision. Not really going to decide for or against, I'm just going to have a, I just don't really care. I'll get around to it when it's, you know, maybe at the end of my life. Let me kind of illustrate why this is a, an impossibility to remain neutral before God. Imagine that you're on a sinking ship, sitting there in your cabin going, you know, I, this ship seems like it's going down. The water level keeps rising, and my ship feels like it's going down. I'm just going to sit here and see if that's really what's going on. Maybe I, you know, you know what? Maybe what I need to do is get some other people. Let's have a discussion group. Is this ship sinking? What do you think? What do you think? Let's have a focus group. Maybe we'll figure, we need to figure out whether or not this ship is sinking. Well, and saying, look, this is not fair. My ship is sinking. This other boat over there is still floating. This is not fair that my boat is sinking. Then that's, that's not going to do, right? If, I, if, I, if my ship is sinking, what do I need to do? I need to abandon ship. I need to leave my ship instead of having a discussion group. Or imagine, students, you ask somebody to go to prom. Or you ask somebody to go to a date, and this is a, might be a nice way of saying no that you'll hear fairly often. Well, let me think about it. The parents, actually, parents might do this to their kids on occasion. Let me think about it. Kids know what that means a lot of times. Um, now, if they keep doing this, so you invite, invite this person to go to the dance, and you're like, hey, we're going to go to this dance. Let me think about it. Week goes by. Hey, what's your answer? Well, still thinking about it. You notice that the date is getting closer, and that person is still thinking about it, and eventually that thinking about it is eventually a no, because you still don't have a date to go to that, that dance. Or lastly, if you're in North Korea living under severe communist oppression, and you have a chance of escape, you have an option. You could either remain in Korea, or you can take that um, opportunity to escape. There is not a non-decision. 
And that's the point this morning. What does all this have to do with, with Adam and, and in Jesus Christ? As a human being, one is in Adam. We are on that sinking ship. We are bearing his consequences. Doing nothing means to remain on that ship, that sinking ship, bearing his guilt and death that he brought. The other possibility is that one is in Christ, rescued from sin and death and receiving justification and life. There is no third option in Scripture that is given. One cannot be in Buddha or in Muhammad or in Joseph Smith or in myself and escape the judgment of Adam. Peter says says it this way in Acts 4.12. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Paul says in 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Or Jesus himself would say this in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way that is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. See, in our age, this idea that there are many ways to God is what's popular. But as Paul has clearly shown in this passage, that there's only two possible answers. You're either in Christ, or you're in Adam. Now, maybe this is the objection that, that might be going through your head, or maybe you may have heard this as a Christian as you've begun to share your faith about Jesus, is you may have heard something along these lines. Jesus as the only way is intolerant and bigoted. Maybe you've heard that accusation in your, in your life or seen it, and like, well, how would I answer that? There's a couple of different ways that you might begin to answer that objection. One thing is actually something that we probably need to do more often is to simply define your terms. Ask that person, why is it intolerant for Jesus to be the only way? What do you mean by intolerant? How do you know Jesus being in the only way, the only way is bigoted? The answer might surprise you and stump your accuser. Usually the person who, um, who makes this accusation, you'll get what's called the sounds of silence because they don't know what they're talking about. They're just making this accusation that you're intolerant and bigoted and they don't really know what it means to be intolerant or bigoted. But eventually, maybe they'll come up with some sort of definition. But essentially, what they, I think, are believing is that it is intolerant and bigoted to say that you're right and other people are wrong. But when you begin to think about that, that doesn't really work. Because they think they're right about you being intolerant and bigoted. So if it's right, so there's a certain contradiction going on here. Why is it, why is it intolerant and bigoted if I think I'm right? And it's tolerant if you think you're right. Please explain this to me. I don't understand. And you might probably see the temperature begin to rise at that point. Another tactic might be, be, be to do is just to point out, Christianity isn't the only religion that does this. Muslims claim to have the only way to God. Jews claim to be the true and only religion. So do Sikhs. So do Hindus. They think that their religion is correct. The point is that Christianity is not the only religion which claims to be right. Other religions claim to be the only way as well. So why is it intolerant and bigoted only if Christians do so? And lastly, um, I, you might remind them that it's not intolerant to people to tell them the way to escape a burning building. It, you know, if, I, if, the burning is, if we have a burning building 
or a sinking ship. And I'm like, you know, just figure out your own way. All paths kind of lead out of here, so just figure it out, figure it out on your own. People are not going to think that I'm being very loving towards that person. Instead, they're going to go like, why didn't you say anything? I need to be explaining to people that, that way of escape. And the last point that you could make on this is, I'm not the one making these claims. This is Jesus who is making these claims. Jesus and the Bible are making these claims. I'm, I am simply believing and relaying to you what it is that Scripture itself says. So really, you don't have a problem with me, you have a problem with God, and you have a problem with his word. And ultimately, that is the bottom line issue, right? People have a problem with God and his word, not so much with us. See, this subjection that believing that Jesus is the only way is not really all that well thought out and does not really stand up to any amount of scrutiny. I think the reason those terms are thrown out there is to kill the conversation. It's making them uncomfortable, so they throw out these emotionally laden terms like intolerant and bigoted so that you will be quiet and, and, not, and stop sharing your faith. I'd encourage you as, as a Christian to demonstrate some courage, press in a little bit, and see if you could continue to have that, that conversation with that person making that accusation. So there are, at the end of the day, though, we do have those two, only two possibilities, those two ways. You can remain in Adam, remain where you are, remain in sin to your own destruction, or you can receive that gift of salvation by faith in Jesus Christ. There's no false dilemma here. Those are the only two options. A non-decision is to remain in Adam. So what are you going to do about that this morning, then? Are you going to remain in Adam? Are you going to remain in your sins? Are you going to choose to reject Jesus Christ, the second and better Adam that we've been looking at this morning? Or are you going to trust in Christ? In Adam, one is condemned. And in Christ, one is justified. In Adam, one dies. And in Christ, one is made alive. So who is it that you are going to be in? Spend a few moments in prayer, and I want you to, to just be thinking about before God who it is that you are in this morning. Father, I do thank you for sending your son to be a second and better Adam. Jesus, I thank you that you were obedient, achieving righteousness and giving justification to those that would demonstrate faith with you. Lord, I do pray for all of us here that we would all repent of our sins and trust in Jesus Christ, that we would be found in him so that we could be made alive in him as well. Lord Jesus, as we close the year out of 2020, I can think of no better way to do that than just to, just to reflect upon who it is that I am going to be found in. And Lord, I do pr- pray that we would all be found in your son, Jesus Christ. We ask this all in your name. Amen.